0: you've been traveling I have (laughs) it's
1: been a lot of fun I drove across the most boring part of America (laughs) just trees and you know highway yeah um, but then landed somewhere pretty nice, good. <laughs> but it's good to be back and like on the show and ready to do something
0: good. What was your favorite part of the rock and roll hall of fame?
1: Oh man. I mean, Dolly Parton's clothing. Of course, <gasps> of course. it's there. Yeah. Oh, now that's I'd already really seen exciting. a lot of her clothing when I went to Dolly world yeah. a couple of years ago, but it was nice cause she got inducted last year. So she has like her own little section. That's so interesting. Cause I remember she was like putting it off yeah she kept inducted. like turning it down because yeah. she was like i feel like there's more important people who have impacted <laughs> on rock and roll i feel like she was looking at rock and roll as like a genre and not right. like an attitude and rock and roll is like an attitude like yeah. you're an independent thinker music mm-hmm. maker and that's exactly what she is yeah that's funny because when
0: my school did like a 50 state kind of assembly one time and i had ohio so I dressed up as the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah. So you looked
0: like a pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, I just yeah. wore I a guitar jeans and I had like a American, like uh, Old Navy, like, you know, those Fourth of July oh. t-shirts they used to do. Perfect. And then I had a guitar.
1: Yeah. Love that.
0: Uh, and that was it. I love that. But we're not here to talk about rock and roll. No,
1: not today. We're
0: here to talk about history On the Rocks. With Katie. And Allie. Uh, this is a podcast where we talk about famous women
1: in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. Not one bit. Not even close <laughs> to it. Um, we do our research and then we pop on in here to tell you what we learned about. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a little wrong. Sometimes our opinions
0: are... A little harsh. I feel like I came down hard on Anne of Green Gables last week. Oh, I um, liked that episode. <laughs> She's just a chatty little girl. <laughs> uh But yeah, but we're here. We're going to have a good time. And we know, though, that you are currently coming back from your spring break and you're doing all of your travel laundry. Oh, which Thor-st, everyone knows. The worst. Yeah. But it's important to do because you don't want your open suitcase sitting there for a month because that's what I do. Mm. And it's never good. No. Sand for years. <laughs> um, so you're doing post-travel laundry and you're busy folding. So you don't want to stop and look up what these women look like. Not at all. <laughs> so we're going to describe them for you before we tell their stories. We're going to get a little physical, physical.
1: Ellie. Who are you doing and what does she look like i am doing gertrude bell Ooh. and gertrude bell was a petite woman with a wavy curly-esque hair that's pulled back mm-hmm. she had a very pointy nose on a very oval face <laughs> um <laughs> quite lovely though she always dressed in victorian clothing mm-hmm. but imagine a victorian woman who looks like she's about to traipse across the desert Ooh. so very interesting um very very lovely like i said but also looked very rich very snobbishly Mm -hmm. rich and in the movie um about her life nicole kidman plays (gasps) her so if that gives you like a little bit of a
0: yeah it's funny
1: because that's kind of what i was picturing yeah like a very and i know (laughs) she has a very like pointed pointy nose nose. yeah Mm -hmm. and nicole kidman is australian Uh but she's just playing a very rich good-looking adventurish British woman <laughs> perfect so who are you
0: doing and what does she look like I am doing Sadako Sasaki Sadako is forever a 12 year old Japanese girl from the few pictures we have we can see that she had black hair sometimes shorter with bangs sometimes uh, longer and pulled completely away from her face and a ponytail uh, she had an oval shaped face with very full cheeks and she can most often be seen in her school uniform or like a cute little sweater but in one photo we do see her in a traditional kimono now however we most often see her memorialized in statues where she is usually accompanied by a paper crane and that is what she looks like
1: exciting (laughs) okay so penultimate episode of the season Mm -hmm. next week's the last week Mm -hmm. tell me what i'm drinking this (gasps) season we've done really nicely on the cocktails i think (laughs) so too it really (laughs) tasted great so this one
0: is called um paper crane Mm -hmm. and it is based off of a cherry blossom cocktail um but i changed it up a bit so it is two ounces of sake uh is it sake or sake i always say sake Sake. but i don't know that my pronunciation is correct (laughs) (laughs) two ounces two ounces of sake one ounce of orange juice half an ounce of cherry liqueur Um, and then you shake that all up and you pour it into a glass with lemon sorbet. And the whole effect is that like the lemon sorbet sits in the middle and the pink is surrounding it and it looks like a flower. It's so
1: pretty. (laughs) It's so, so pretty. Cheers. Cheers. Mm, And it's delicious and sweet Mm. and so
0: springy. Very springy, very smooth, very fun. I love it.
1: Mm. I love it. Love it. (laughs) Um. Okay. So, what do you know about Sadako? So, this girl was in my kids' um fourth grade curriculum. They had to read a little, like the short story Sadako and the Paper Crane. So they had to read that. So I read mm-hmm. it with them. Um. So I know, like the bit that's a very short story, especially for the elementary school kids. I think it's only something like seventy pages. Um. But I know that she was in Japan during the atomic bombings. Mm-hmm. I think she was affected by that. And then I think she did a lot of folding of paper cranes mm-hmm. as, like, a peace-type deal. Um, and then I think she died really young from mm-hmm. nuclear exposure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know any details yeah. about her life, but that's kind of what I know about her. Yeah. Um. So that is pretty
0: much it. <laughs> There's not a lot on her personal life, so it's kind of hard to get into who she was as a person cuz her story is so engulfed by the
1: war and she was so young she when the war so started young.
0: yeah um so i got most of my information from nationalparkservice.gov wikipedia a video from dw news and an article from the national world war 2 museum website uh, written by taylor bamford uh that one was really essential for me Getting to understand what was going on like during the bombing. Okay. But yeah, I just wanted to get a feel for like the day because I'm actually like th- pretty unaware of like the details of the atomic bombings. You know, yeah. it's like everybody knows that they were absolutely horrendous. They're awful. And I'm not going to get into it too crazy much because it's very sad. It's very political. People have very strong opinions about this. Um, I don't... I think this is a very ugly part of American history. Yeah. I of course hate that we did this. Um <laughs> but uh we did and um yeah, so I'm going to briefly go over it and uh, yeah,
1: and touch on the girl's story mostly.
0: Touch <laughs> on the girl's story mostly. <laughs> All right. Sadako Sasaki, Sasaki Brain. <laughs> uh was born on January 7th, 1943 in Hiroshima, Japan. In the back of a pedicab, apparently. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Amazing. I have a friend who gave birth in the back of a car. Really? Mm-hmm. Didn't make it to the hospital in time. Her oh husband delivered my her baby. Oh, gosh.
0: Wild. Crazy. <gasps> she grew up well-loved by her parents, her grandmother, and her brother, who was two years older than her. We unfortunately don't know much about her early life because her early life is engulfed in war and, of course, one of the worst tragedies known to man. The atomic bombing. When Sadako was two years old, the United States flew a specially outfitted B-29 bomber plane over Japan. But this one was different than the ones that had come before. It held something called Little Boy, an enriched uranium gun-type fission weapon, a.k.a. an atomic bomb. And on the morning of August 6, 1945, at 8.15 a.m., the bomb was dropped on the city of Hiroshima, where Sadako Sasaki was laying in her bed at just two years old. Or sitting at the table eating breakfast. That was a little fuzzy. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, The bomb fell six miles in 43 seconds. The bomb exploded with the force of more than 15,000 tons of TNT. The temperatures at ground level reached 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit in less than a second. According to people who survived the bombing, there was a sudden flash of brilliant light followed by a large booming sound. But people closest to the bomb, within a half mile, were vaporized. Bronze statues melted, roof tiles fused together, and the exposed skin of people miles away burned from the intense infrared energy unleashed. At least 80,000 people died instantly. According to the pilot, at the base of the cloud, fires were springing up everywhere amid a turbulent mass of smoke that had appeared um, that had the appearance of bubbling hot tar the city we had been with the city we had seen so clearly in the sunlight a few minutes before was now an ugly smudge it had completely disappeared under this awful blanket of smoke and fire within seconds the people of hiroshima were existing in what looked like an apocalyptic wasteland because that's exactly what it was and of course this all happened again on the 9th when we bombed the city of nagasaki I was not aware that like the bomb hit and then fires were springing up everywhere. I think that was something very new for me that I didn't know that that had happened.
1: Yeah. I think the, just because this is the only two times that nuclear warheads have been dropped on actual cities that people don't have a very clear image in their head of like what actually happened. Like the nuclear weapons before that had just been tested in like Mm -hmm. deserts and in Mm -hmm. water. Like just, I don't know the, the um backlash and like the you know when people talk about like the wall of sound Mm -hmm. that's just being pushed out like throws you off your feet it's not even the bomb it's Mm -hmm. like how quick the air is moving yeah i mean
0: and if you look at like obviously the photos are horrendous but like one of the ones that struck me is like there's like a woman and she has her back exposed and her kimono was like burned into the back her back like into her skin Uh, The total death toll is a little hard to estimate, especially since many people died from the radiation long after, but the general number is between 129 and 226,000 people, and most of them were civilians. Mm -hmm. Sadako was just one mile away from ground zero when the bomb went off. The blast was still so strong from that distance that she was blown out of the window of their home. Her mother raced out to find her, expecting her to be dead. But to her surprise, Sadako was unharmed, at least on the outside. The family started to flee the city as quickly as possible, but soon black rain started to descend upon them. The intense fires created around Hiroshima by the bomb carried large quantities of ash into the atmosphere. The ash had the effect of seeding the clouds, and the result was a black rain which fell for one to two hours after the explosion. The black rain was sticky, wet, radioactive water that not only stained everything that wasn't already black and burnt, but it was soaking into people's skin and getting into their mouths. So if they weren't hit by the immediate radiation, they were also getting exposed to radiation from the black rain. They're like
1: being soaked in it.
0: Yeah, soaked in radiation.
1: Terrible. Sadako,
0: with her mother and brother, escaped the fires but her grandmother turned back to grab something that was left in the house, but the fires were too much. She tried to take refuge in a water cistern, but she was killed. Thankfully, Shijeo, Sadako's father, was not in Hiroshima at the time of the bombing, so he was able to reconnect with his family after the bombing, which I can't even imagine his relief to know that
1: his family got out of there his when they're a mile from ground zero. That's insane that they awesome. survived I, yeah, as long as they did. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but other people were not so lucky. The scene was so chaotic that people looked for days for loved ones, not knowing if they were badly injured somewhere, if they had run away and they were taking shelter, or if they had been vaporized from the beginning. But unfortunately, like other families, Sadako's family did eventually return to Hiroshima to start building their lives, which was no easy task. The family struggled with Sickness, financial hardship, food scarcity, and the uncertainty of their family's future. They mourned the loss of their grandmother, their friends, and of course their sense of safety. But the silver lining was that, by all appearances, the family seemed pretty okay. Sadako was a happy and healthy child. She was known to be a fast runner and very popular with her classmates. She was even a member of the relay team at school. But in November 1954, When she was 11 years old, she noticed swelling on her neck and behind her ears. By January, dark splotches called purpura had started appearing on her legs. She was soon officially diagnosed with leukemia Mm -hmm. or atomic bomb disease, as the people in the area had started to call it. She was hospitalized on February 22nd, 1955 and given no more than a year to live. But while in the hospital, Sadeco remained optimistic and resilient. Even though she was sick, she continued to bring happiness and cheer to her family and friends. She even saved up money that was given to her while she was in the hospital, and she used it to buy her family gifts. Then one day, the Red Cross Youth Club came to the hospital and gave out paper cranes to the children. When Sadako asked her father why they gave out paper cranes, her father proceeded to tell her the legend of the crane. Japanese folklore says that a crane can live for a thousand years. And a person who folds an origami crane for each year of the crane's life will have their wish granted. This gave Sadako faith. She thought, if I can just fold a thousand cranes, I can wish to be well again. So she started gathering paper and folding. Sadako folded religiously. And upon folding her thousandth crane, she made her wish to be well. Now, her story has been told a few different ways. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that gets misconstrued is that she used her thousand crane wish for world peace. Mm. And her brother was like, no, she obviously wished to get better. First and foremost, to live past Mm -hmm. the age of 12. Right. Like that's what she fucking wished for. Right. Like,
1: (laughs) of course she did. Like it making her like like (laughs) martyr for the cause is a little bit much. She's 11. It is.
0: (laughs) Um." But unfortunately, the cancer was already too advanced. Her condition worsened, and soon it was hard for her to even eat. Her family urged her to eat something, so Sadako requested tea on rice and remarked that it was tasty. (laughs) She thanked her friends and family for taking care of her. And with those last words of gratitude, literally her last words were thank you. Sadako died on the morning of October 25th 1955 at the age of 12 her hospital room was filled with paper cranes they say the smallest one was the size of like a grain of rice Mm. (laughs) according to the fictionalized version of her story by a Canadian author she had only made it to 644 cranes before she died and it was said that her school friends finished folding the rest of the thousand cranes for her but again, according to her brother, not only had Sadako finished her task and made her wish, but she started to fold another thousand to make another wish. And that was for her father to get out of debt and the family to be okay. Because apparently someone had, like, borrowed money from her dad and, like, never paid it back. And, like, it was, like, really sad. Um But this time she only made it to 300. But still, 1,300 cranes is pretty fucking impressive.
1: That's a huge deal to do in less
0: than a year? Yeah. Okay. Um, And maybe she didn't get her exact wishes, but Sadako did become something incredible. She became a symbol of peace and hope. After she died, her classmates wanted to do something in honor of her. This part is true they started raising a money to build a monument to honor their friend and the other people of Japan who had been lost to the atomic bombs. This idea blossomed and would eventually become the Children's Peace Monument. This is a memorial now inside the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Park, and it's a statue of Sadako with her arms raised above her with a big paper crane overhead. The plaque below says, this is our cry, this is our prayer, peace in the world. There is also a statue of her in Seattle Peace Park. But when the statue was first erected in 1958, the community response was actually a little bit negative. The people of Hiroshima were angry with the Sasaki family because they felt like this statue drew too much attention to one girl who was affected rather than the hundreds of thousands of other people. Of course, right. Which... It's is, like it sucks, but it's like she's a symbol. She's yeah, a yeah. symbol for other people. That's all mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. It's not... I don't think their mission was to ever be like our daughter... Our family was the only one affected by this. Right. We <laughs>
1: suffered more than you. Yeah.
0: Right. It was more so an, a symbol of like, don't forget that like thousands of children died. Right. Because of this, you know. Um, And they didn't really say much more about this in the video. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how it ever reconciled like the family and their community like it was kind of vague um and all they said was that they eventually like moved away from the city because Hmm. they were not treated very well after the memorial (laughs) which sucks that's a shame And then over the years, as the legend of Sadako grew, her father felt like her true story was getting a little bit lost, like a lot of those little details, again, making her more of a martyr, more of a symbol, and less of like a real human girl. So in 2020, her brother, Masahiro Sasaki, got together with an American author and illustrator named Sue uh, DeChichion. Sue had been inspired by Sadako's story for quite some time and even started the Peace Crane Project in 2013. Participants in the Peace Crane Project are asked to compose a poem, write a message, or draw or paint a picture of peace, and then fold that into an origami crane. Uh, And then they sign up on the website to exchange their crane with someone in a different city, state, country, or continent. And they're encouraged to take a photo of their crane after placing it in their community and upload the photo online. In its first year, children from 84 countries participated in the project. An elementary school in Mexico even used the project as a fundraiser to fix their bathroom. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. I forgot to finish the 2020 thing. So then <laughs> this girl, Sue, got together with Sadako's brother, mm-hmm. and they wrote the Sadako and the Paper Cranes mm. uh, book okay. together. Um, and so that was like his project to kind of be like, hey, like, this is the story that I very much want to tell. Right. Okay. Um. So... Sadako should have celebrated her 80th birthday this year. She is not here, but she is now a constant reminder of the world we currently live in, full of war and bombs and guns. But also, and more importantly, the world we want to live in, full of peace and the hope that maybe if you fold a thousand paper cranes, you can make a wish and it might come true.
1: Yeah, that's such a sweet story, and it like it reminds me so deeply, like. Obviously, after World War Two, like, they got together with the Geneva Convention and, like, came up with a list of, like, the rules of war. And a lot of times people, I think, target that towards genocide. And it's, like, there were a lot of things on that list. And some of them are about not bombing civilian locations because we very openly did that. It's, like, no yeah. hospitals, no schools, no churches. Like, that's why terrorism is terrorism yeah. and war is war. They're separate things. Yeah.
0: Well, and what was really shocking to me, which I didn't know, is that, like, some of the people were describing that day, and this one guy was, like, I was riding my bike, the air sirens went off, and I totally ignored them. Because even though, like, we had, like, a military operation, like, nearby in Hiroshima, he was, like, they literally never bombed us. So I, nobody in the town took shelter. Like, nobody was like, working. We didn't expect we it. We just thought it wasn't real. Like right. And like that's, it just didn't have to be, mm. it did not have to be this way. Right.
1: And there are like, other ways—even if you're going to drop an atomic bomb, like, there are, there are military bases. Yeah. Like, that's, like—not mm-hmm. that I'm into nuclear weapons or anything, yeah. but, like, there are other ways that this can be accomplished. Yeah. Besides vaporizing
0: 80,000 civilians. Right. Like, yeah. that's so fucking it's crazy. Terrible. Like, because I think it ended up landing, like, on, like, a surgical center. Ugh. Like, on, like, a hospital. That's terrible. Like a civilian hospital. Preying on the weakest. I don't know. And, like, I know people are like, well, we warned them. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, <laughs> Yeah. OK,
1: okay. <laughs> I uh, I actually really I've we got back from vacation and the last two nights uh, I really like have struggled with sleeping a little bit because on really? the way home we stopped at the Flight 93 Memorial oh. mm-hmm. and I just um, we were there and I was just like overcome with emotion because mm-hmm. obviously like I was 14 on 9-11. So like it was like a pivotal formative year in my life. Yeah. But then. Like, I was just thinking about the difference between, like, the Twin Towers and the Pentagon, where it's like, you know, this happens, and you're, like, existing in the tragedy, whereas, like, on this plane, you have a group of 40 strangers that take a vote on what to do. Yeah. Like, that's just traumatizing. But, yeah. Mm. It's a good reminder. You're right mm. at the end where you said it's a reminder that we are living in this world with war, but yeah. the hope for peace is so much more important. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, I'm glad she's there to remind <laughs> us of that because uh, I am too, cause,
0: uh, <laughs> <we> need it, <laughs> especially like, and it's, it's hard to, especially with like all the school shootings that are, yeah, it feels constant Yeah, and like kids should never be at the center of this no, and they the should not be this and it's so fucking annoying. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is not the research that I particularly wanted to
1: (laughs) to do in this happy (laughs) week, uh, this Easter Holy Week. But Um, it's important. Yeah. Okay, so let's go get more cocktails and talk about a very different person. (laughs) (laughs) What? No, they don't. we
0: are back part two second cocktail yeah bright and sunny looks beautiful yeah it looks really cute i love a brown sugar garnish Mm too
1: (laughs) it's fun well i needed it to look like sand it does that's a very good sand sand cocktail yes Yes. so this is called queen of the desert and it's two ounces of gin One ounce of sweet vermouth, half an ounce of dry vermouth, Mm. and then orange juice. Ah. And then you put brown sugar on the rim. If you don't have brown sugar, cinnamon sugar will work fine. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Very bitter. Mm. It is bitter. The dry and sweet vermouth in there really... Mm.
0: They're like playing against each other. It's really funny. And it almost has like a smoky element to it. Yeah. Which is Um, wild.
1: I don't know what's happening here. Yeah. (laughs) And the brown sugar kind of is like the in the barbecue sauce on the edge of the smoky cocktail. That's interesting. Interesting. Mm. Okay who knows okay so we're gonna talk about gertrude bell can you tell me what you know about gertrude bell i don't know anything i'm Good. guessing she was like an explorer mm-hmm. that's what i'm assuming yeah she's tipp- <laughs> she's traditionally listed with like the explorer girls okay but she is um as i came to find out a lot more than that uh because she is usually amongst the women who like went and did explorer things yeah Okay, so I did this research with Stuff You Missed in History class. Mm -hmm. They had a two-part episode on her. So I'm like condensing, condensing. And then I watched the movie The Queen of the Desert, which is a small section of her life. And then did a lot of reading Wikipedia and online articles and short YouTube videos, etc. Type in Gertrude Bell anywhere and you'll find basic info. All right. Are you ready to learn? I am. Okay. Gertrude Bell was born on July 14th, 1868 in England. Her family was very wealthy, which would really enable her to do all the things she does later in life. She Mm. has money. She is a woman of privilege. Her grandfather was an iron master named Sir Isaac Bell, so he was knighted. He was both an industrialist and a member of parliament. Her father was Sir Hugh Bell, also knighted. He was a mill owner, a county deputy, a justice of the peace. Like, the men in this family are just thing upon thing. Yeah. (laughs) She's very close to her father because her mother, who also came from money, died while giving birth to Gertrude's little brother. Mm. So Gertrude is three years old when that happened. So... We've seen this go one of two ways. Either the dad... Or the mom passes and the dad just like adopts the kid out to somebody else Uh because he's like not going to take care of her. But Mm -hmm. I assume they had so much money that a nanny was watching them anyway. So he kept her on board and um, they became super close all through her life. She can consults her dad about everything that she's going to do. Mm -hmm. Um, He is her role model. He shared his knowledge of government with her. He provided her with access to um, highly placed government officials Uh, So it's really cool, like, how close their relationship is. Although she doesn't spend a lot of time with her dad later in life, she does respect him dearly. When Gertrude was seven, her father remarried, providing her with a stepmother. Her name was Florence Bell, and she eventually birthed Gertrude's three half-siblings. Okay. So now she has Maurice, which is her full brother, and then three half-siblings that are younger than her. Florence was a playwright and a children's author and wrote um like articles after she would do these studies like she did the study of the Bell family factory workers and mm-hmm. then like published the conditions of the factory of her uh, own family? Yeah. Interesting. And then she was really interested in the lives of the wives of the iron workers. So she would go and spend time with them and then ensure that they were treated appropriately. Yeah. So Florence is kind of a really cool person and she's been cited as influencing some of Gertrude's future behavior. I'm sure. She yeah. Sounds like a badass. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, I want to do an episode on Florence Bell, who was this woman. Um, so she also though was a very like, as you would say at that time, good woman. So Florence instilled the concepts of duty and decorum Mm -hmm. and like how you act as a woman in Victorian Mm -hmm. society. Um, But Florence recognized Gertrude's intelligence too and contributed to it by making sure that she got into excellent schools. Um, And later in life, I mean, Gertrude pretty much only referred to her as mother, like in their letters, she would say Mm -hmm. mother dearest and like things like that, because I just, she didn't know her mom. If we have, we're having some insect issues it's the spring and it's hot yeah okay i'm okay. gonna keep my eye out there so if i swat <laughs> at it don't feel like you need
0: to stop okay but i'm gonna keep an eye out
1: got it many biographies point out gertrude's mother's death as like a traumatic moment in her life that made her want to do all these risky things in the future i just don't believe that like yes it's sad and she was three years old but i feel like her dad and stepmom really pushed her to be a bold person. Right, like,
0: why does it have to come out of tragedy? Yeah, like, I just it, don't think it did. <laughs>
1: like, I would buy that
0: if her stepmother and father weren't so cool mm-hmm. and like encouraging. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's very I, weird. Yeah, I don't really think that that holds much water. Yeah, and again, it could be in the soup. But right, somewhere stirred up. It was, stir like a broth. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's the lentils. Okay, at best. At best. <laughs> Gertrude attended Queens College in London, which was a prestigious school for girls. Then, at age 17, she went on to study at Lady Margaret Hall Oxford University. History was one of the things women were allowed to study at Oxford. She specialized in modern history and was awarded with a first-class honors degree, which is the British equivalent to an undergraduate degree from Oxford. Eleven people graduated that year. Nine were recognized, and the other two were women (laughs) because they didn't give out academic diplomas until 1920, and she went before that. This is still the 1800s. So Gertrude Bell is commonly listed as the first woman to graduate from Oxford.
0: Wow, that's Yeah, so (laughs) So that's the
1: first really amazing thing that she did. She's the first woman to graduate from Oxford. Her and her classmate, Alice Greenwood. (gasps) I wonder if she went by Allie. Another Allie Greenwood. who went to oxford she did much better than (laughs) me (laughs) after graduating she attended the london social rounds of balls and banquets for two and a half years where Mm -hmm. eligible young women and eligible young men would pair off and find a match and she just didn't find a match Mm -hmm. she picks up and leaves there's this great moment in the movie where she's talking to one of her male friends about finding the right man. And he was like, I'm not sure the right man for you has been born yet. Oh. Which is so like. What a compliment. Yeah. You like, were born. You were so like, there aren't men advanced enough to to deal with you as a woman yet. Like that just doesn't exist. Yeah. I kind of
0: <sighs> love that. I do too. <laughs> like
1: that him, Robert Pattinson plays that part super crazy Ooh, why why? <laughs> why i don't know what's going on james franco's in this movie like this movie's bananas
0: um so i watched never been kissed the Okay. james franco is an extra in that movie stop it he's Just like a little one baby of
1: the boys that like hangs out with guy <laughs> i didn't <laughs> he know has, that like, one line that's grant
0: <laughs> he goes man didn't know josie was so cool <laughs> Good for James. I loved it. I loved his little cameo before he was famous. <laughs> yeah. Now he's and crazy. now boy, he's crazy. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Um,
1: so the speculation here about her life is that she really was just too bold and knowledgeable to make for a good wife. So people were really like turned off by wanting to marry her because she wanted to do things. She's such a Miranda. I know. I know you know, she didn't get it. braces but yeah. <laughs> that
0: we know of. that we know of
1: yet <laughs> okay so gertrude's uncle was a british ambassador to persia so after this two years she's fed up she's like i'm just leaving london so she travels to vis- visit him in persia she stays there for six months loves the experience refers to persia as paradise uh, in a okay. letter home She went there May of 1892, then describes all of her experiences in a book called Persian Pictures that was published two years later. And okay, while she's doing these travels, I want to be absolutely clear. She is no Nellie Bly. She doesn't have like one outfit and a suitcase. She is traveling with like all of her personal china in tow, (laughs) her like silver. She's got her camera, her huge Photography equipment that she uses to take pictures of everything, which is cool because no, a lot of people in the West hadn't seen pictures of the Middle East. Oh, so she's like one of the first people to go to a lot of these places. That is so. Cool. So she's taking all this stuff. So anyway, while she's in Persia with her uncle, she courted a man named Henry Cadogan, and he is a mid-ranking British diplomat. And Who ma- was just born? <laughs> Who, <laughs> yes, <laughs> he is head over heels for her. She's head over heels for him. They're Mm. intellectual equals. He'd been a diplomat in the region for a while. So he teaches her about the culture and the language and introduces her to a lot of middle, middle Eastern stuff. Um, He does propose to her, but when she wrote home to her father, he refused permission (gasps) to marry him. Because he's not of the same social class and was in some pretty serious debt. And he's just like, I'm sorry, my daughter is accustomed to living in a specific way. Uh, Cadogan. I know.
0: Sir Cadogan. Yeah. Is that from
1: Harry Potter? Cadogan, yeah. He's the knight. He's the knight in the picture. Mm -hmm. It is. Good job. Good pull. But then he, Jesus Christ! That fly is so, is so should big. Should I just go get it? It's know. so big. I don't know. It's tr- now but it's now escaping. It got shy. It'll be back. We'll get it. We'll get it.
0: <laughs> we need a fly swatter back here. I, we do. There's like a list of things.
1: Yeah. Now it. <laughs> the picture you made. I love it. okay Okay um so she goes home a lot of times she goes home and then back out and then home and then back out so that's just something we have to be aware of i i have no idea when what is happening well it's
0: hard really to like especially when like someone's a traveler like that to like really nail down their story it's pretty wild by beat and it's like unnecessary yeah I don't care about those details.
1: So she's at home at this point. She gets a telegram that Henry has died. Cadogan? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, no. And it's heavily suggested in the film that he took his own life um, after the refusal to be married. Oh, my God. This experience is just so upsetting to her. uh, And... It's formative in like her making decisions. She's like, okay, my heart doesn't belong to a man anymore. It belongs to the desert. Like, that's it. So she spends the next decade traveling the world, mountaineering, and developing a huge passion for archaeology and other languages. Gertrude is fluent in Arabic, Persian, which is Farsi, French, German, Italian, and Turkish. She, again, was very wealthy, so it was yeah. not an issue Uh, for her to do all this traveling but also she had all the wealthy person skills she had been horseback riding since she was little so she could very easily hop on a camel Mm -hmm. and get across the desert and I think people forget about that in terms of money it's not just money it's like the technical know-how of things you learn how to do Mm -hmm. as she's doing all of this travel traveling she's publishing her own books with detailed descriptions and pictures that she took of places people have never seen she's also doing translation work so she translated a famous book of iranian poems into english for the first time and like it's a highly regarded scholarly work like people are like this is an amazing translation from arabic to english that nobody had ever done before she (laughs) missed it i'm taking a drink it knows now okay She goes back to the Middle East where she visits Palestine and Syria and she meets the Druze people. So this is a Muslim um, mountainous group that would be considered militant. Literally no one has visited them from Britain in like a decade because they're like so violent. Yeah. And she's like I think we need to record information about this incredible group of people so i'm gonna go even though the british government's telling me not to and they're Uh like okay well will you spy while you're there and she's like not for you yeah (laughs) (laughs) but actually like throughout her travels if she ever gathered intel that was important for the british government like she did tell them yeah so that was helpful of her so some people list her as a spy
0: um i know interesting
1: She goes and charms the hell out of the king of the Druze people. (laughs) They love her. They're like, you're amazing. Please stay and hang out. She stays there for a while. And then after she leaves, apparently the Druze king was like traveling out and about in the Middle East. And he asks this other tribe he comes upon. Have any of you seen the queen that's been traveling around here? (laughs) The queen? He thinks she is like a a queen of the... Yes. Got it? Yeah! Where'd he go? Fly down. Oh, good. He can hang out under there and heal. Um, Yeah, they thought she was a queen because she was so well-educated in how to speak Arabic and, like, how to conduct herself. That's amazing. Really cool. I love that. During the next six years, she climbs, decides she's going to be a mountain climber. (laughs) She (laughs) wants to set records in the Alps. So she not only goes and climbs these mountains, but records 10 new paths. She, like, does first ascents on oh some of the God. Bernese Alps. Ten new first ascents. That's crazy. They name one of the Alpine mountains after her. <laughs> there is a mountain named after this woman because she got there first. Oh, my God. I think she's the first woman we've covered with a mountain named after her. I'm not Probably. positive, but yeah. I think. Um, she did have a near-death experience on one of these trips. She's climbing a mountain. It's 1902. It starts snowing and hailing and lightning, which forced her and her climbing... Um, like partners for 48 hours to stay on the ropes like clinging to the <gasps> edge of a rock like in terrifying oh conditions my God. and let me remind you she's in a dress there are not like women's climbing clothing and this also isn't like nice like North
0: face, R. Columbia, R. like you know, <laughs> no. insulated down jackets with thermo technology, yeah, and no, it's like, no, no, no. like wool
1: things are falling apart, wet wool, yeah, <laughs> it's heavy and disgusting. Um, she does do some climbing after that, for example, she climbs some mountains in the Rockies, like when she visits North America, but she really slowed down after that. <laughs> sure. like, mm. So, around this time, she befriends like this British. A colonial administrator and has like a brief but passionate affair with him and then they just write letters back and forth for a while but nothing ever really comes of that relationship mm-hmm. um and I will tell you too that there are plenty of men in the British Empire that hate her Oh, I'm sure she's just not following protocol she's yeah. like I want to go see the Druze people and they're like you need permission to yeah. get like a grant and she's like I don't need their money I will go wherever the fuck I want and I will pay <laughs> for it myself. So like she's getting around the red tape and it's pissing people off. I'm sure. who Like want to do these studies. Okay. So then she can conducts this um, trip to Constantinople at this archaeological site. And this is when she gets really into archaeology um, and then goes home and writes a book about it called Syria, the desert and the Shone. The book vividly describes Damascus, Jerusalem, Beirut, Antioch, and the lands of the Druze. This book is super well-received in Western Europe, and it describes um, this time that she's out in the desert, and um, an Arabic man says, as God wills it, you are a daughter of the Arabs, which she translated as a daughter of the desert in her book, and this is regularly attributed to her. She's the daughter of the desert. Soon after the book is published, she goes to Anatola, which is like the large part of the country of present-day Turkey, and begins working with Sir William Ramsey, who's an archaeologist and a New Testament scholar. They excavate and all these destroyed buildings from the Byzantine era. They're just going in, finding all these things, doing all these digs. She's writing about it. The results are a book called A Thousand and One Churches, which is really cute because it's like A Thousand and One Nights because yeah. that's the part of the world they're in. And they just went through and excavated these churches and found all these amazing things from the Byzantine Empire, who we just covered earlier this season. Hmm. So maybe she found some things from Theodora. I bet she did. Then in her next journey, she goes to Mesopotamia to research some cave carvings. She maps out, describes, and draws all of these ruins with two other archaeologists, one being T.E. Lawrence, who becomes just like her best friend yeah like they just become the greatest of friends this is Robert Pattinson in the movie um they just really get along they strike up quite a friendship they both majored in the same thing at Oxford they both speak fluent Arabic um and they're just writing like books and journal articles out there in the desert I love that her most arduous um Arabian journey happened in 1913 it's 1800 miles from Damascus to Baghdad um or Baghdad sorry and this is rough because it's 1913, it's about to be World War I, mm-hmm. and like things are politically volatile because that's where the Ottoman Empire is, and that's a huge player in World War One. Mm-hmm. So during this trip, she becomes the second foreign woman ever to visit Halil. Mm-hmm. Unbeknownst to the outside world, the area is ravished by war. The oldest monarchical leader there is 16 because everybody else in the bloodline has been slaughtered gertrude was held prisoner there for 11 days before being released and afterwards she said in halil murder is like the spilling of milk so it's just like so common um but she was all this time out meeting important political men and making important political connections. She was obsessed with meeting the Kings and leaders of all these different tribes. She just like wanted to get to know them. And I think her father gave her the confidence to talk to these highly educated political men. um, Which is interesting because although she was a bit of a suffragist at home, she didn't believe that all women should get the right to vote. She was kind of like queen Victoria in that way where she was like, I'm a special type of woman like that has a greater grandeur than most women. So that's her dark Mark. (laughs) Mm, All of this travel and research and writing results in Gertrude being elected as a fellow of the geographical society, like national geographic Mm in 1913 and gets awarded medals from them in 1914 and 1918. Then world war one outbreaks in Europe and a key player, like I said, in world war one is the Ottoman empire, the British war office writes her a letter they're like can we please have your advice on this situation we need you of course she promptly gave them advice on how to deal with different tribes no one else in the world knew these people like she did she knew them all personally Mm -hmm. not just like read books about them she volunteers for the red cross during the war and was part of the wounded and missing um, inquiry department because she was multilingual she Mm -hmm. could walk into a hospital and talk to the french soldiers and be like here's who's missing from france now let me call back to the hospital and tell them the people we have yeah so that was super helpful uh, you should also know that she is having a very strong emotional affair at this time with Major Charles Dowdy Wiley. He is a married man who's in the military. Um, they had had a relationship from 1913 to 1915. As far as we know, it was not consummated. It was all emotional. Okay. Um, But it seems like from their love letters, he was intending on divorcing his wife when he got back from the war. But then he dies in battle. Ugh. So now she has lost another like love of her life. <sighs> The British government was then like, we could really use you. And they summon her to go to Cairo. They're like, with your friend Lawrence, please go to Cairo. Collect data on the different Arab tribes where their water sources are, and figure out which ones will join with the British against the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. So that's what she goes and does. She's collecting intel for World War I military. Unreal. Uh, her stay there was short because then the British were like, can we, can we need you in India? Actually, psych. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want you in Cairo anymore. And they send her to India to mediate disagreements between the Arab Bureau and the government of India. She's like, sure. But later said that she was mostly just sending harshly worded telegrams back and forth. Um, I can't tell you a lot about this time because they literally don't understand what is happening. I just know that the British <laughs> campaign in Mesopotamia is not going well. And she's out there working her ass off to find allies and um, angles for better military engagement. Yeah. Furthermore, she's not paid for this oh my God. at first. Then there's this guy who arranges for her to get an official paid position. They, this made her the only female political officer in World War I British forces. She was a political officer That's in World crazy. War I. But her title was of the Oriental Secretary of Percy Scott Cox. Hmm. So Percy Cox is like her boss, I guess. Okay. Her, her handler. Yes. <laughs> One might say. She really starts, though, and this is what's important about her, to open up people's eyes about what is happening in the Middle East and is writing about some really hard things. She reports about genocide and how the Ottomans are massacring people in Armenia. She reported that the Ottomans are selling Armenian women in public market. And she's like, we have to stop this. In 1917, after the British take Baghdad, she was summoned to the city and given the honor commander of the order of the british empire what that's the highest civilian thing you can get
0: oh my god
1: and that's like getting a presidential medal of freedom she's like i'm like 30 and a woman in the 20s it's not even the 20s it's like 1917 okay And then a lot of wartime guys leave Mesopotamia and a lot of political guys come in. So like a changing of the guard. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, she knew all of these people. She was at the Paris Peace Conference helping decide what part of Ottoman Empire the British get versus the French get. Um, And the British got southern Syria. As she's spending her time in Egypt and Palestine and Syria, um, there's unrest in the region. And she, very different from a typical colonial British person, believes that they need to be independent Arab governments that are backed with help by the British advisors until they don't need them anymore. And she's blaming all these other men. Like, they, these countries are going to fall apart, and they're going into unrest right after the war. So the people she's pointing out, this guy Wilson specifically, gets blamed and fired. They bring Percy Cox back in, and he's like, you want to be my secretary again? She's like, chill. So she promptly restores Ottoman government structure like their cultural way of ruling like you can't just be a British Empire all of a sudden and she puts Iraqi people in leadership roles she's like let's let these people take care of their own government but the British are dealing with the Irish War of Independence so Churchill is like hey we can't really afford all these officials in Iraq so let's just pull them all out now that the Great War is over However, Churchill did send Lawrence Cox and her to the Cairo conference to help determine what mandates would be held in these British colonial territories. She was trusted because few people in the world had as much experience with this land. She is trying to push for Arab independence. Mm -hmm. She's like, please, please, please. But um, they're dealing with a lot because even at this time we have the the Sunni Muslims don't want the Shia Muslims to rule and the Shia Muslims don't want Sunni Muslims to rule. So she finds a guy. She finds a guy to help out and she's like trying to push this guy to become the leader. They're trying to figure out what are the borders of Iraq. And when I tell you Gertrude drew the borders of modern day Iraq and Turkey, I mean that. Oh my god! She drew the borders of those countries. That's she told people crazy. these are the tribes that need to be included in each place. Like, the countries we have now. I know. It's wild. Um, And then, against her wishes, of course, they place a British ruler in charge of Palestine. And she's like, this is just sowing deep mistrust. Like, we're saying we don't trust them to handle their own country, which is outrageous. So, Gertrude, throughout the 20s, worked in the Iraq-British High Commission. And now, she pushes her guy. Um, I think it's pronounced Fassal. And he's going to be the new king of Iraq. She helped find him because he was in the direct bloodline of the Prophet Muhammad. So she was like, nobody, the Sunnis and the Shia Muslims cannot be upset with this. We have proof of where he comes from. Uh So he's crowned king and she is his official advisor. She's advisor to the first king of Iraq. And um, she is referred to as a lady of his court. She was then the mediator between Iraq and the British Empire. She also took special interest in public relations, arranging receptions, parties, meetings. She's acting as first lady, pretty much, to him, and also suggests the design idea for the Iraq flag. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm this. sorry what are you doing so wild she, a couple of minutes ago she was climbing mountains Katie I don't know what she's yeah, doing I, <laughs> so I'm... the Iraq government was then like you know what would be great we need a library in Baghdad and Gertrude's like pick me pick me so she energetically promotes this library subsequently serves as the president of the library she raises funds gets free copies of books from publishers from Britain and other places in Europe to put in this library she Um, has the library be taken over by the Ministry of Education so it can become a public library, only the second one in the entire country of Iraq. Um, And it then became known as the Baghdad Public Library. Today, it is called the National Library of Iraq that she set up. Um, Then, the king appointed Gertrude as the honorary director of antiquities, a task she loved because she loved archaeology. Seven notable ex um excavations happened during her life one where they're like a digging and they find hundreds of clay tablets that are like amazing and they're discovered and deciphered under her watch she um has to though fix archaeology which a lot of british people were not willing to do during the ottoman empire it was chaotic People were unregistered. They would come and dig up things in arguably the birthplace of humanity. This is Mesopotamia. There's so much religious stuff here. All the great empires in the world, or a lot of them, had been here. And people are coming in and digging and just taking stuff out of the country. She's like, No, I'm sorry. We're not going to do that anymore. You're going to register. She gets laws passed. There are strict parameters. You have to say when you're coming what piece of land you're digging uh-huh. when you're leaving. You have to tell me what you're looking for. And then furthermore, you have to register everything you found. And I'm going to tell you whether staying here or going uh-huh. with you or becoming the national property of Iraq.
0: I feel like she would get along very well with Indiana
1: Jones. Yes. I feel like
0: they yeah. should be a pair. One <laughs> of the YouTube
1: uh, things was called the Indiana Jones of Iraq. She's oh, like, it belongs in a museum. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, so here in this country, so this really cut down on black market trades of antiquities, Yeah, which was so important. In this job, she's responsible for storing the antiquities for personal review. She has a storeroom, but it's filling up super quick. So she requests a building to use as a museum. It's rejected. But after lobbying for several years and talking to some high key figures in Iraq, she gets the pass. She gets a bottom floor of a printing building to set up as an Iraqi museum. In both archaeology and museums, she helps establish a procedure um, that are now common around the world. She has a ledger. um, She does a detailed description. They measure each piece. They put comments in the edge, where it was found, what Uh date it was found, like all that stuff. And a formal numbering system for all the pieces in the museum. And then sends photos to the British Museum if they need further research. She did this with a very small, hardworking staff. And it helped preserve Iraqi culture and history, which would have been lost. These relics would have been taken all over the world and it would have been on the black market. We wouldn't have known when or where they were found. Mm. Um, So it's a really huge deal. And as we said, they get to stay in the country of origin. So Gertrude is under a lot of stress from this. She's writing books. She's correspondence with government officials. She's doing intelligent reports. She is doing reference works and white pages. She is in charge of a library. She's in charge of a museum. She's an advisor to a king. And it just took a really big toll on her health. She had reoccurring bronchitis Mm -hmm. um, brought on by years of cigarette smoking and lots of different bouts of malaria. She was already kind of petite and frail, but the Iraqi heat definitely didn't help. And her stress level definitely didn't help. She became extremely emaciated in the late 1920s many of her friends also were retiring and leaving Iraq saying they're going home but Iraq is her home so she doesn't like want to retire and leave so everybody she knows is going she tried to um strike up another relationship with kind of like a younger british guy and gets turned down um and then the guy who replaces percy cox kept gertrude bell on as secretary but um he consulted her less than percy cox did kind of treated her like a secretary and not like what she really was oh my god the queen of the desert yes the queen and then the king of Iraq kind of stops consulting her as well. He doesn't really need her anymore. Like she gave him all the Intel he needs and now he's kind of pushing her to the side. She had thrown herself into work at the museum and the library, but now she's thinking like, I think they sidelined me. They think a woman was getting too close to power. So they created these jobs that would get me away from the center, like the library and the Mm -hmm. museum. This will take Gertrude's time and get her away so she's struggling with a pretty deep depression from this and on top of all that both of her dogs die on like Mm, the same day which is so sad because that's what she's going home to in Iraq like she's not married she doesn't have kids um so on July 12th 1926 just two days before her birthday Gertrude was discovered dead of an overdose (gasps) of sleeping pills no we don't know whether it was intentional or a misdose, but most people believe that she took her own life, just not able to handle the pressures and like the personal blows coming all at once. Yeah. Um, she was buried in Baghdad. Her funeral was a major event, drawing a large crowd. People were cheering for her. The people in Iraq loved her. She was like a national hero changing the world. Um... The king of Iraq watched the procession from his private balcony. The British King George V wrote letters of condolences to her parents, and they did not skimp on this. She was given a full military burial, like from the British and from the Iraqi people. The museum opened shortly before her death and is now called the Iraq Museum. In Gertrude's will, she bequeathed the museum with 500,000 pounds which in today's money is 2.1 million pounds. And the British School of Archaeology in Iraq, she gave 6,000 pounds, which today is 250,000 pounds. So let me back up. This woman was the first woman to graduate from Oxford, fluently spoke eight languages, set 10 mountain climbing records, and had a mountain named after her. Was an accomplished archaeologist, published more than 10 books, was the first Western person to meet the Druze in over a decade, was only the second woman to go to Halil. She provided intelligence for Winston Churchill directly during the war and was the only female British officer, helped draw the new borders of the Middle East and negotiate post-war peace, was the direct advisor to the King of Iraq, founded a public library, and founded an Iraqi museum. And we don't even know her name.
0: I didn't know who she was. Drew the borders of (laughs) Iraq and Turkey. That's so crazy. Why wasn't she
1: on the news more when we were doing Operation Iraqi Freedom? You would think the U.S. would have her plastered everywhere. Like, look at what Iraq could be, what it was. That's unreal. I I can't believe her story. I can't either. So, I just one quote about her that somebody wrote after her death. Many of her compatriots wrote articles about her, all these men that worked with her for decades. He said, no woman in recent times has combined her qualities, her taste for dangerous adventure with her scientific interest and knowledge, her competence in archaeology and art, her distinguished literary gift, her sympathy for all sorts of conditions of men, her political insight and appreciation of human values, her masculine vigor, her common sense and practical efficiency, all tempered by feminine charm and a most romantic spirit. (laughs) That's Gertrude Bell. Wow, that's insane. Wild person. I I, every twist and turn, I was like, "What is she doing? Yeah, why is she making that decision?" And you know what? It kind of her, but the end of
0: her story is so shocking because it kind of makes me feel like it doesn't matter how much you accomplish. It doesn't matter if she had all those things plastered to her bathroom mirror every day of like, "Look what I've done." When you feel like you've been slighted and you feel like you have nowhere else to, like, that's a, such a real fucking feeling. Yeah,
1: and she tried at love so many times yeah. and it just wasn't working out. They were, like, a dying. These men were dying around her. It's not Ugh. like she, I don't know, so sad. Oh, my gosh. That's bananas. Yeah.
0: All right. So, we, are we ready yes, to we compare? Need, <laughs> we need to talk about these two ladies in a little conversation with each other in a segment we call (laughs) just the two of us okay these are really hard to compare because they are such polar opposites they are (laughs)
1: um i think one place to take this is the existence of something happening during the first world war and the Mm -hmm. second world war um you know it's easy to see how both of these women were strongly impacted by the world going to war but weren't necessarily allowed to be integral parts of it
0: Mm -hmm. like
1: it's this obviously yours is like a very young baby so like she can't really be involved but so much so that the U.S. doesn't even care that they're gonna bomb her city yeah and Gertrude is like we need you but we don't want to pay you and we don't want to give you a title well I wrote that
0: Sadako is a symbol and Gertrude is a tool Mm. you know and both are ended up being dehumanized in the war oh yeah of like they're like okay gertrude like we need you to do all these things that we can't do because we're fucking stupid or like not stupid but yeah like, you know of like you have a special skill set that like we're gonna kind of acknowledge how excellent you are because mm-hmm. you're our only hope but also we're not gonna pay you and you're, we're not gonna respect you right <laughs> like it's so frustrating and again with sadako it's kind of like She's just kind of, like, a symbol of, Mm. like, the atrocities of war. Like, I don't know. I just kind of feel like they were kind of dehumanized at the end in their kind of stories. They
1: were. And I think you were very right about how, like, when we look at Sadako, we think about how the world is full of war and guns and bombs. But we can also look at it so positive, like it is full of peace. Mm -hmm. And I think Gertrude really believed that. Yeah, She was like, they're like, don't go see the Druze people because they're murderers. And it's like, yeah, maybe if you go in, like, you own the place. <laughs> but, like, maybe don't be so butch and masculine and just walk in and talk to the guy. Like, yeah. So I, I just think she's so fully... Humanized other people mm-hmm. and was like, it can be peaceful if we want it to be. We can yeah. give control of Palestine mm-hmm. to Palestine, and they will be fine if you stop demasculating them and like taking away all of their their power and their agency just because yeah. you're the British. You can't do that, right? And stop trying to like you know convert them to your religion. Like they right. have their own religion. Can yeah. we stop that? Let like, it be. Just let them
0: be and like let them be in charge of their own place, right? Um, <laughs> um, and I kind of feel like. Both of them in some ways were kind of like victims of this kind of like fucked up world. Like mm. as as many things as Gertrude did, you know, there were still things that like held her back, you know, her, she couldn't marry who she wanted. She could never settle down then with someone, you know, she couldn't graduate officially from school. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously these things are very pale in comparison to Sadako literally being bombed and mm-hmm. dying of leukemia, but You know, I think, though, even though they were kind of living in worlds that were not treating them as they should have been, I think they both kind of, like you were saying, had that, like, hope. Mm -hmm. Like, Gertrude really believed that, like, if we can just fucking talk to people, then we can do something. Mm -hmm. We can do some good in this world. Like, I think she was a person who was like... I am on this world to do a purpose and I really believe that I can make a difference. Mm -hmm. Like so many people don't think that they can make a difference. And Sadako is like, I may not like, I may die at the age of 12, but like I have the hope that if I fold a thousand paper cranes, maybe I can get a wish and maybe it will come true. Right. Like not maybe she really believed it, you know? And I think that that's that kind of hope that is hard to come by when, (laughs) We're literally dealing with stuff like this now, mm-hmm. you know, upset in the Middle East. You know, we're talking about children being killed in schools, you know, bombing still going on, Russia evading Ukraine. Like, it's, it just kind of feels like, oh my gosh, we're still in the same place that both of these women were at mm-hmm. that <laughs> caused them so much harm in their life.
1: Yeah. Um, But they were both so action-oriented about it, yeah. which is, like, I think kind of what you were getting at. It's like, well, look, it's happening. And I'm um, sure—maybe Sadako didn't know, but I'm I'm sure Gertrude Bell knew of all the different wars that had happened. Mm -hmm. You know, she studied history at Oxford, so Mm -hmm. she better had. And she said, you know what, yeah, this is probably an impossible task, but I am going— to go and do X, Y, Z. And I think Sadako thought the same thing. Like, yeah. people are dying of leukemia every day around me. I'm in a children's hospital. But yeah. I am going to do XYZ. i yep. Z. I'm going to do it. I'm, she was active with her brain, with her hands. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that is what gives you hope. Because yeah. you don't know what little thing is going to make all the difference. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe folding those paper cranes could have done something. Well, and it, it gave did. her a mission. And it, it,
0: it did do something. It right. inspired people. Like, cranes are now like origami cranes and are a symbol of peace right and you know you have the the crane project where like kids make these paper cranes and they send them all over the world to each Mm -hmm. other to connect and like you see a paper crane and like most people like think of Sadako, and they think of like oh my gosh that's right and i think that that's another part of both of their stories is Sadako ended up kind of getting really folded into the history of world war ii Mm -hmm. And it's a way that we preserve the history and we're reminded of it and Mm. we can learn from it. And Gertrude was trying to do the same thing. She's like, let's preserve these things. Let's categorize them. Let's, you know, put them in the right museum, not just our museums. Like let's make a system so that we can preserve the history in the right way. And kind of like how Sadako's brother years later was like, okay, her story has been a little distorted. So while I'm still here, Why don't I set it right again? Like, let's just make sure that, like, people know what she did wish for, what she didn't wish for, Mm -hmm. that she didn't, like, not make it to her goal. Like, she did, like, she actually folded 1,300 cranes. Like, because those little details, they do matter. Mm -hmm. Like, some people might say, like, well, what does it matter if she folded 600 or 1,300? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, actually, it matters a lot. Because we have so little of her story that, like, we should try and get it right. And I'm sure I got things wrong in my little short story mm-hmm. of her. <laughs> but I just think that it's important to try and, and preserve history and, and remember as much as we can. And I think both of these women, girls, <laughs> were big uh, elements of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so, too all right all right. you ready to toast I am who would you like to toast this evening
1: I just want to toast to women who were born in the wrong year yeah I just it was really hard for me to stomach Gertrude's story because I feel like if she was alive at a in a different time period or if she was a man her she I mean she would have been in in charge of Iraq like (laughs) she would have been the British guy that they put in charge of everything and she just wasn't um and I think that that sucks for her um and I mean it also sucks for Sadako like you know she was you know say she was born 15 years later Mm -hmm. not that the radiation still wasn't killing people 15 years later but you know it's just it's a really sad situation yeah Yeah. Mm.
0: I want to toast um the children lost to adult violence. It sucks. It really sucks. I'm so sick of it and I hate it. I hate that kids are put through this. Um like the woman Sue who wrote the book with Sadako's brother, um she said she was inspired by the Sandy Hook shooting. Mm-hmm. Like that's what kind of made her get interested in Sadako's story and she was like maybe if like kids around the world can like make paper cranes and start conversations about peace then like we can try and process these like horrible things that are happening to our children right um so yeah just to um the children who are lost and who are just affected i think about all the kids who survived these school shootings and it's not a place of
1: safety anymore
0: no yeah like there was just that news anchor she's like a fully adult woman and Mm -hmm. like she was reporting on a school shooting and she was like i was actually my school was involved in a school shooting mm. and like so i uh, know what these kids are feeling like running out of their school like the videos of those poor kids like running across the highway trying to get across the street to like find sanctuary like they shouldn't be doing that no it's so frustrating yeah
1: it's so it's frustrating <sighs> and it's dangerous and we're at this point we're like all culpable yeah of like just allowing this to continue yeah so mm. anyways yeah to the children they don't cheers they deserve a better world to the
0: babies (laughs) all right now what are you enjoying in pop culture this week
1: listen i'm gonna promote cleveland (laughs) so i just went to cleveland it was fun i had all the things you would want from a major city it had an art museum with van gogh's and picassos in it it had the rock and roll hall of fame of course that's the famous thing it's known for Three major sports stadiums, a zoo and aquarium, <laughs> a national, a natural history museum, a botanical gardens, like mm. anything you could want. Yeah. Plus no traffic. Plus it's on, <laughs> <laughs> plus it's on Lake Erie. So Is like, really? Yeah. If you, we were on Lake Erie, like we were at the beach, like, and it was cold, but you know, we we're outside, we we're hanging out at the beach. There's hiking trails, there's biking trails. Uh, it's like, come on, everybody. Like, let's all get together and just like, yeah. let's all go to Cleveland. It was such a tr-
0: It sounds like a mini Chicago to
1: me. Yes. It's a lot like Chicago. Um, Chicago is so much more famous, obviously, because it has the massive skyscrapers. Like Chicago is like full of skyscrapers. And this is that's another really great thing. The city is almost entirely walkable. You could get anywhere. Really? Like, we didn't get in the car to go somewhere, and we weren't there. It took no more than 15 minutes to get anywhere. Yeah. Well, it was I hope, wonderful. I hope you can
0: finish Drew Carey's mission.
1: <laughs> of make, putting Cleveland on the yeah. map. <laughs> Me and Drew. <laughs> you and Drew, you're really doing it. <laughs> I just, every single person that I told, that producer told, uh, that the girls told, oh, we're going to Cleveland, they'd go, why do you have family there? <laughs> it's like, ah! No, like it's an actual literal place. <laughs> like, I don't understand. I'm going to see Mimi <laughs> in my
0: office. Duh. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, I am going to promote a book this week. Sure. Um, it's a book that Casey read and then I read. Um, it's the Thursday Murder Club. Mm. I think it's been kind of going around and it's very good. It's like. If you like. um, the show only murders in the building love this is like kind of a similar vibe no podcasts involved but (laughs) lame about like this club at this retirement home Mm. that like gets together and they talk about cold cases and like try to solve them and like the old ladies are like so great and like sneaky and like smart but like everybody's underestimating them and like it's just it's fun. really fun. <laughs> it's a, just a really fun read, and I enjoyed it. And then it's also like a very big like whodunit. And like I kept making fun of Casey because every time like he'd be reading the book and he'd be like, "I know who it is," and then be like, "Damn, wasn't that?" And <laughs> <laughs> it happened to me too. Oh, I thought that's so. Fun. I thought well, Casey didn't know, but I'll know. <laughs> didn't know, but yeah, it's so great. Highly recommend it. Um,
1: and yeah. We love you guys. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you for being here. Um, almost to the end of the season. Mm-hmm. Lots of people have been sending us requests. Thanks so much.
0: Mm-hmm. We love it. Um, Find and us all the social medias. Please do. And if you want to hang out with us a little bit more, come and join us on Patreon.
1: You get to help us plan. You mm-hmm. get first dibs at requests. Mm-hmm. Love you. Love you. And um,
0: yeah, and you can just hear all about our personal lives and you can... Uh, just donate a little bit to the cocktail fund. Yeah. It's
1: sometimes it's running low.
0: and we have to buy low. new triple sec yep. or blue curacao. <laughs> Mainly blue curacao. <laughs> okay. Uh, but we love you. Rate and review us on Apple podcast if you get a chance. Uh, but never forget that well-behaved women do not wear heels in the desert. No, they don't. And they rarely make history. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye.